Section 20 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum. Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology. Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology by Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 41. Tunnel Engineering. A Museum Treatment. By Robert M. Vogel. Part 2. Rock Tunneling. While the art of tunneling soft ground is of relatively recent origin, that of rock tunneling is deeply rooted in antiquity. However, the line of its development is not absolutely direct, but is more logically followed through a closely related branch of technology, mining. The development of mining techniques is a practically unbroken one, whereas there appears little continuity or relationship between the few works undertaken before about the 18th century for passage through the earth. The Egyptians were the first people in recorded history to have driven openings, often of considerable magnitude, through solid rock. As is true of all major works of that nation, the capability of such grand proportion was due solely to the inexhaustible supply of human power and the casual evaluation of life. The tombs and temples, won from the rock masses of the Nile Valley, are monuments of perseverance rather than technical skill. Neither the Egyptians nor any other peoples before the Middle Ages have left any consistent evidence that they were able to pierce ground that would not support itself above the opening, as would firm rock. In Egypt were established the methods of rock-breaking that were to remain classical until the first use of gunpowder blasting in the 17th century, which formed the basis of the ensuing technology of mining. Notwithstanding the religious motives which inspired the earliest rock excavations, more constant and universal throughout history has been the incentive to obtain the useful and decorative minerals hidden beneath the earth's surface. It was the miner who developed the methods introduced by the early civilizations to break rock away from the primary mass, and who added the refinements of subterranean surveying and ventilating, all of which were later to be assimilated into the new art of driving tunnels of large diameter. The connection is the more evident from the fact that tunnelmen are still known as miners. Copper Mining B.C. Therefore, the first model of the sequence, reflecting elemental rock-breaking techniques, depicts a hard rock copper mine in Figure 1. Due to the absence of specific information about such works during the pre-Christian eras, this model is based on no particular period or locale, but represents, in a general way, a mine in the Rio Tinto area of Spain, where copper has been extracted since at least 1000 B.C. Similar workings existed in the Tyrol, as early as about 1600 B.C. Two means of breaking away the rock are shown. To the left is the most primitive of all methods, the hammer and chisel, which require no further description. At the right side, the two figures are shown utilizing the first rock-breaking method in which a force beyond that of human muscles was employed the age-old fire-setting method. The rock was thoroughly heated by a fierce fire built against its face and then suddenly cooled by dashing water against it. The thermal shock disintegrated the rock, or ore, into bits easily removable by hand. 
the practice of this method below ground of course produced a fearfully vitiated atmosphere it is difficult to imagine whether the smoke the steam or the toxic fumes from the roasting ore was the more distressing to the miners even when performed by labor considered more or less expendable the method could be employed only where there was ventilation of some sort natural chimneys and convection currents were the chief sources of air circulation despite the drawbacks of the fire system its simplicity and efficacy weighed so heavily in its favor that its history of use is unbroken almost to the present day fire setting was of greatest importance during the years of intensive mining in europe before the advent of explosive blasting but its use in many remote areas hardly slackened until the early twentieth century because of its low cost when compared to powder for this same reason it did have limited application in actual tunnel work until about nineteen hundred direct handwork with pick chisel and hammer and fire setting were the principal means of rock removal for centuries although various wedging systems were also in favor of some situations their importance was so slight that they were not shown in the model huzak tunnel it was possible in the model series without neglecting any major advancement in the art of rock tunneling to complete the sequence of development with only a single additional model many of the greatest works of civil engineering have been those concerned directly with transport and hence are the product of the present era beginning in the early nineteenth century the development of the ancient arts of route location bridge construction and tunnel driving received a powerful stimulation after eighteen hundred under the impetus of the modern canal highway and especially the railroad the huzak tunnel driven through huzak mountain in the very northwest corner of massachusetts between eighteen fifty one and eighteen seventy five was the first major tunneling work in the united states its importance is due not so much to this as to its being literally the fountainhead of modern rock tunneling technology the remarkable thing is that the work was begun using methods of driving almost unchanged during centuries previous and was completed twenty years later by techniques which were for the day almost totally mechanized the basic pattern of operation set at huzak using pneumatic drills and efficient explosives remains practically unchanged today the general history of the huzak project is so thoroughly recorded that the briefest outline of its political aspects will suffice here huzak mountain was the chief obstacle in the path of a railroad projected between greenfield massachusetts and troy new york the line was launched by a group of boston merchants to provide a direct route to the rapidly developing west in competition with the coastal routes via new york the only route economically reasonable included a tunnel of nearly five miles through the mountain a length absolutely without precedent and an immense undertaking in view of the relatively primitive rock-working methods then available the boar's great length and the desire for rapid exploitation inspired innovation from the outset of the work the earliest attempts at mechanization although ineffectual and without influence on tunnel engineering until many years later are of interest these took the form of several experimental machines of the full area type 
intended to excavate the entire face of the work in a single operation by cutting one or more concentric grooves in the rock. The rock remaining between the grooves was to be blasted out. The first such machine tested succeeded in boring a 24-foot diameter opening for 10 feet before its total failure. Several later machines proved of equal merit. It was the Baltimore and Ohio's eminent chief engineer, Benjamin H. Latrobe, who, in his report on the Hoosac Tunnel, Baltimore, October 1, 1862, page 125, stated that such apparatus contained in its own structure the elements of failure, as they require the machines to do too much and the powder to do too little of the work, thus contradicting the fundamental principles upon which all labor-saving machinery is framed. I could only look upon it as a misapplication of mechanical genius. Latrobe stated the basic philosophy of rock-tunnel work. No mechanical agent has ever been able to improve upon the efficiency of explosives for the shattering of rock. For this reason, the logical application of machinery to tunneling was not in replacing or altering the fundamental process itself, but in enabling it to be conducted with greater speed by mechanically drilling the blasting holes to receive the explosive. Actual work on the Hoosac Tunnel began at both ends of the tunnel, in about 1854, but without much useful effect until 1858, when a contract was let to the renowned civil engineer and railroad builder Herman Haupt of Philadelphia. Haupt immediately resumed investigations of improved tunneling methods, both full-area machines and mechanical rock drills. At this time, mechanical rock drill technology was in a state beyond, but not far beyond, initial experimentation. There existed one workable American machine, the Fowl Drill, invented in 1851. It was steam-driven, and had been used in quarry work, although apparently not to any commercial extent. However, it was far too large and cumbersome to find any possible application in tunneling. Nevertheless, it contained in its operating principle the seed of a practical rock drill, in that the drill rod was attached directly to and reciprocated by a double-acting steam piston. A point of great importance was the independence of its operation on gravity, permitting drilling in any direction. While experimenting, Haupt drove the work onward by the classical methods, shown in the left-hand section of the model, figure 2. At the far right, an advance heading, or adit, is being formed by pick and hammer work. This is then deepened into a top heading with enough height to permit hammer drilling, actually the basic tunneling operation. A team is shown double jacking, that is using two-handed hammers, the steel held by a third man. This was the most efficient of the several hand drilling methods. The top heading plan was followed so that the bulk of the rock could be removed in the form of a bottom bench and the majority of drilling would be downward, obviously the most effective direction. Blasting was with black powder and its commercial variants. Some liberty was taken in depicting these steps, so that both operations might be shown within the scope of the model. In practice, the heading was kept between 400 and 600 feet in advance of the bench, so that heading blasts would not interfere with the benchwork. The bench carriage simply facilitated handling of the blasted rock. It was rolled back during blasts.
the experiments conducted by Haupt with machine drills, produced no immediate useful results. A drill designed by Haupt and his associate, Stuart Gwynn, in 1858, bored hard granite at the rate of five-eighths inch per minute, but was not substantial enough to bear up in service. Haupt left the work in 1861, victim of intense political pressures and totally unjust accusations of corruption and mismanagement. The work was suspended until taken over by a state commission in 1862. Despite frightful ineptitude and very real corruption, this period was exceedingly important in the long history, both of Hoosac Tunnel and of rock tunneling in general. The merely routine criticism of the project had by this time become violent due to the inordinate length of time already elapsed and the immense cost compared to the small portion of work completed. This served to generate in the commission a strong sense of urgency to hurry the project along. Charles S. Starrow, a competent engineer, was sent to Europe to report on the progress of tunneling there, and in particular on the mechanization at the Montchenis Tunnel, then under construction between France and Italy. Germain Sommelier, its chief engineer, had after experimentation similar to Haupt's invented a reasonably efficient drilling machine, which had gone into service at Montchenis in March 1861. It was a distinct improvement over hand drilling, almost doubling the drilling rate, but was complex and highly unreliable. Two hundred drills were required to keep sixteen drills at work. But the vital point in this was the fact that Sommelier drove his drills not with steam, but air, compressed at the tunnel portals and piped to the work face. It was this single factor of one application rather than invention that made the mechanical drill feasible for tunneling. All previous effort in the field of machine drilling, on both sides of the Atlantic, had been directed towards steam as the mode of power. In deep tunnels with ventilation already inherent problem, the exhaust of a steam drill into the atmosphere was inadmissible. Further, Steam could not be piped over great distances due to serious losses of energy from radiation of heat and condensation. Steam generation within the tunnel itself was obviously out of the question. It was the combination of a practical drill and the parallel invention by Somalia of a practical air compressor that resulted in the first workable application of machine rock drilling to tunneling. The Somalia drills greatly impressed Starro and his report of November 1862 strongly favored their adoption at Hoosac. It is curious, however, that not a single one was brought to the U.S., even on trial. Starro does speak of Somalier's intent to keep the details of the machine to himself until it had been further improved, with a view to its eventual exploitation. The fact is that although workable, the Somalier drill proved to be a dead end in rock drill development because of its many basic deficiencies. It did exert the indirect influence of inspiration, which, coupled with a pressing need for haste, led to renewed trials of drilling machinery at Hoosac. Thomas Stone, chief engineer under the State Commission, carried this program forth with intensity, seeking and encouraging inventors and himself working on the problem. The pattern of the Somalier drill was generally followed. That is, the drill was designed as a separate, relatively light mechanical element, adapted for transportation by several miners, 
and attachable to a movable frame, or carriage, during operation. Air was, of course, the presumed power. To be effective, it was necessary that a drill automatically feed the drill rod as the hole deepened, and also rotate the rod automatically to maintain a round, smooth hole. Extreme durability was essential, and usually proved the source of a machine's failure. The combination of these characteristics into a machine capable of driving the drill rod into the rock with great force, perhaps five times per second, was a severe test of ingenuity and materials. Doan, in 1864, had three different experimental drills in hand, as well as various steam and water-powered compressors. Success finally came in 1865, with the invention of a drill by Charles Burleigh, a mechanical engineer at the well-known Putnam Machine Works of Fitchburg, Massachusetts. The drills were first applied in the East Heading in June of 1866. Although working well, their initial success was limited by lack of reliability and a resulting high expense for repairs. They were described as having several weakest points. In November, these drills were replaced by an improved Burleigh drill, which was used with total success to the end of the work. The era of modern rock tunneling was thus launched by Somalier's insight into initially applying pneumatic power to a machine drill, by Doan's persistence in searching for a thoroughly practical drill, and by Burley's mechanical talent in producing one. The desperate need to complete the Huzak Tunnel may reasonably be considered the greatest single spur to the development of a successful drill. The significance of this invention was far-reaching. Burleigh's was the first practical mechanical rock drill in America, and in view of its dependability, efficiency, and simplicity with compared to the Somalia drill, perhaps in the world. The Burleigh drill achieved success almost immediately. It was placed in production by Putnam for the Burleigh Rock Drill Company before completion of Huzak in 1876, and its use spread throughout the western mining regions and other tunnel works. For a major invention, its adoption was, in relative terms, instantaneous. It was the prototype of all succeeding piston-type drills, which came to be known generically as Burleys, regardless of manufacture. Walter Shanley, the Canadian contractor who ultimately completed the Huzak, reported in 1870, after the drills had been in service for a sufficient time, that the techniques for their most efficient use were fully understood and effectively applied, that the Burley drills saved about half the drilling costs over hand drilling. The per-inch cost of machine drilling averaged 5.5 cents, all-inclusive, versus 11.2 cents for handwork. The more important point, that of speed, is shown by the reports of average monthly progress of the tunnel itself, before and after the use of the air drills. In 1865, the average monthly progress was 55 feet. In 1866, 48. In 1867, 99. 1868, no data. In 1869, 138 feet. 1870, 126 feet. 1871, 145 feet. 1872, 124 feet. The right portion of the model, of figure 3, represents the workings during the final period. 
the bottom heading system was generally used after the Burley drills had been introduced. Four to six drills were mounted on a carriage designed by Doan. These drove the holes for the first glass in the center of the heading in about six hours. The full width of the heading, the 24-foot width of the tunnel, was then drilled and blasted out in two more stages. As in the early section, the benches to the rear were later removed to the full tunnel height of about 20 feet. This operation is shown by a single drill in figure 4, mounted on a screw column. Three eight-hour shifts carried the work forward. Drilling occupied half the time, and half was spent in running the carriage back, blasting, and mucking, clearing the broken rock. The tunnel's 1,028-foot central shaft, completed under the Shanley contract in 1870 to provide two additional work faces as well as a ventilation shaft, is shown at the far right side of this half of the model. Completed so near the end of the project, only 15% of the tunnel was driven from the shaft. The enormous increase in rate of progress was not due entirely to machine drilling. From the outset of his jurisdiction, Doan undertook experiments with explosives, as well as drills, seeking an agent more effective than black powder. In this case, the need for speed was not the sole stimulus. As the east and west headings advanced further and further from the portals, the problem of ventilation grew more acute, and it became increasingly difficult to exhaust the toxic fumes produced by the black powder blasts. In 1866, Doan imported from Europe a sample of trinitroglycerin, the liquid explosive newly introduced by Nobel, known in Europe as glonuin oil, and in the United States as nitroglycerin. It already had acquired a fearsome reputation for its tendency to decompose with heat and age, and to explode with or without the slightest provocation. Nevertheless, its tremendous power, and characteristic of almost complete smokelessness, led Doan to employ the chemist George W. Mowbray, who had blasted for Drake in the Pennsylvania oil fields, to develop techniques for the bulk manufacture of the new agent and for its safe employment in the tunnel. Mowbray established a works on the mountain and shortly developed a completely new blasting practice based on the explosive. Its stability was greatly increased by maintaining absolute purity in the manufacturing process, freezing the liquid to reduce its sensitivity during transport to the headings, and extreme caution in its handling further reduced the hazard of its use. At the heading, the liquid was poured into cylindrical cartridges for placement in the holes. As with the Burley drill, the general adoption of nitroglycerin was immediate once its qualities had been demonstrated. The effect on the work was notable. Its explosive characteristics permitted fewer blast holes over a given frontal area of working face, and at the same time it was capable of effectively blowing from a deeper drill hole 42 inches against 30 inches for black powder, so that under ideal conditions, 40 more percent tunnel length was advanced per cycle of operations. A new fuse and a system of electric ignition were developed which permitted simultaneous detonation and resulted in a degree of effectiveness impossible with the powder train and cord fusing used with the black powder. Over a million pounds of nitroglycerin were produced by Mowbray between 1866 and completion of the tunnel. 
When the Shanleys took the work over in 1868, following political difficulties attending operation by the state, the period of experimentation was over. The tunnel was being advanced by totally modern methods, and to the present day the overall concepts have remained fundamentally unaltered. The Burley piston drill has been replaced by the lighter hammer drill, the dome drill carriage by the more flexible jumbo, nitroglycerin by its more stable descendant dynamite, and its alternatives, and static electric blasting machines by more dependable magnetoelectric. But these are all in the nature of improvements, not innovations. Unlike the preceding model, there was good documentation for this one. Also, the Hoosac was apparently the first American tunnel to be well-recorded photographically. Early flashlight views exist of the drills working at the heading, in figure 6, as well as of the portals, the winding and pumping works at the central shaft, and much of the machinery and associated aspects of the project. These and copies of drawings of much of Doan's experimental apparatus, a rare technological record, are preserved at the Massachusetts State Library. End of section 20.